Welcome to the Hope Unyielding podcast. I'm your host, Hope Johnson, and I have the privilege of hearing some outstanding people from all walks of life share stories of God's faithfulness in their lives. God knows that remembering His faithfulness doesn't come naturally. When He led Israel through the Jordan River in a miraculous parting of the sea, He knew the people would be quick to forget. Because of this, He commanded Joshua to set up twelve stones to serve as a memorial to the people of Israel forever. The memorial stones of today are our stories. It's one thing to read about God's faithfulness in Scripture. It's another to look into the eyes of someone who has been in the depths of darkness you now inhabit, but who has come through them with praise on their lips. Whatever you're facing, I pray that the stories shared on this podcast will encourage you with the truth that God is always faithful, and whatever your circumstances, you always have hope. It was a day like any other when Alyssa Marshall's world was upended. When Alyssa found a large lump on her five-year-old daughter Amelie's arm, she knew her life was about to change drastically. Soon after, Amelie was diagnosed with Ewing sarcoma, a rare, aggressive form of cancer. Today, Alyssa tells her story of walking through every parent's worst nightmare, and how in the midst of the questions, pain, and uncertainty, God showed her and her family his faithfulness. Alyssa, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Hope. So excited to be here. Uh, Before we get started, though, I'd love it if you could introduce yourself. Um, Who are you? What do you do? Um, Do you have any hobbies? Uh, My name is Alyssa Marshall. I am a mom to three little girls, nine, almost six, and almost two, actually, which is really, really crazy. Two birthdays in September coming up. Um, and I live in Nashville, Tennessee with my husband, Naftali, which is a super great name. And part of our story is that when I met him, I was like, I'm going to marry him because he has a really cool name. And I did. Um, and we live in Nashville. I, uh, am a stay at home mom, basically full time. And I homeschool full time. And I also, uh, run a business called Honeydew Goods, which is just, uh, kind of my side hustle. But the whole point of it is currently showing people how to live a more sustainable life in a really easy way and just kind of showing them different swap products that they can buy or swap services that's like not altering their lifestyle at all. It's just making a different choice for something. That has been kind of my focus for the last couple of years. And yeah, that's kind of where I spend my time. Hobbies, I'm still figuring out. I'm a mom with three small children. So I kind of fell into the hole of I have no hobbies other than getting to sleep through the night (laughs) every once in a while. But now that my kids are getting a little older, I'm realizing I do need hobbies. And I have figured out that I really like outdoorsy stuff like hiking, kayaking, canoeing. So I'm trying to investigate what that looks like for myself right now. And yeah, I'm kind of, I've been started, like I take a 
on my, I get one day a week where I get to do a little work and some self-care and I've started being like, I don't want to go shopping. I want to take a hammock and go read Mm. in a hammock somewhere. So I've been doing that and it's been amazing. I really like it. Now you said your oldest Amelie, she's nine. Is that correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So today, you know, I'm on to have you share a little bit about your story starting about four years ago. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's see. 2018, I guess. Yeah. 2017, we were in Maine uh, at Christmas time and it was just a you know, a year like any other year, I'll do the quick setup for you and then you can ask questions. But ultimately, Naf and I both grew up overseas and we've always been trying to get back to overseas. And a lot of things had lined up to make 2018 the year that we were going to move overseas. So 2017, we went to basically see my parents and siblings and grandparents and kind of like have a last holiday hurrah before moving overseas. Um, And 2018, uh, like literally the first week of January, we came back, got Amelie into kindergarten, second semester of kindergarten, and within just a couple of days found a tumor in her arm Um, and kind of the rest is history, which we'll talk about. But um, that's kind of when our world literally changed from one day to the next and um And a lot of the reasons we do what we do and who we are now and the the place we spend our time and energy is all because of 2018. So tell me a little bit about what was going through your mind during that diagnosis process. Yeah. So we, by just before Amelie was diagnosed and we were planning on going overseas, I had been working full time um, selling health insurance. And I really loved it. And it was very flexible, but was trying to pull back on that. And, um, part of me taking that job and us moving to Nashville originally back in 2014 was because we had student loans and a credit card. And we were like, if we live overseas, we don't want to have any of that. We were considering being missionaries. So we also were like, we're not raising support for people to pay our student loans. So we moved to Nashville, which was in and of itself a bit of a traumatic move for us because we lived in Chicago previously and loved it. We were very active in our ministries, very active in our church, and very active in our super diverse community, which we had intentionally moved into and really just loved it. We had a great group of friends. Um, We had a lot of South American friends, and then we were living in the Muslim quarter, and it was just like a beautiful season of our life. And then God called us to Nashville. Never lived in the South in my life. That was other than South America. It was very different for me than any expectations I had. And I just remember when my husband told me that he was offered the job, but they were asking us to move to Nashville. I remember like driving on Lakeshore Drive and being like, okay, everything is about to change. And I'm really mad about this because everything's going so well. Mm-hmm. Um, so fast forward to getting pregnant with Eloisa, our second, right after we moved to Nashville and deciding, okay, we are going to, I'm going to get a job because we have this goal of getting out of debt so that we can move away out of this country and live overseas and show our kids what it's like to live overseas and do that whole thing. And so I worked full time for about 18 months paid off all of our debt, put some great money in savings. And that basically gets us to 2017 where we had money saved. 
we had literally started selling our stuff and I was communicating with different traveling companies to see how we could ship our stuff down to Chile, which is where we're ultimately trying to move, visiting my family and like, you know, we don't know when we're going to see you guys again. We love you. We're going to move overseas. And hopefully coming back to Nashville is us tying up all those listens during the spring so that by April, 2018, we'd be on a plane to the rest of our lives is kind of what we, mm-hmm. we basically said, uh, maybe like starting in October, November, I'd pick up Amelie from school and I'd be like, grab your bag, bring your bag inside. And she'd just be like, ah, oh, my arm hurts. And I'm like, wow, like you're five. And this is beginning. Like we're already <laughs> copping out of responsibilities. Okay. And didn't really just didn't think anything else of it. And we were up against kindergarten and public school and figuring out the dynamics of all of that. There were a lot of things happening um, in the classroom and with her peers that was causing my husband and I to question a lot of things about, oh, like, are we putting our kids in public school? What does this mean? So there's a whole other, there's, there are a lot of different things going on. And Amelie got sick in Maine and we just figured it was the flu, just a typical flu thing. Got back and she came home from school maybe three days in and is like, my arm really hurts. Naf takes her jacket off and we say basically this like tennis ball on her wrist. And, you know, partially we're like, okay, maybe this is a fracture. Like this explains why her arm hurts, but there's no reason that her hand would be this big. And so we just kind of had this pit in our stomach that we're like, oh, we are on the precipice of a change, of course. And for me, the way that I kind of walked in this strange purgatory (laughs) until we had answers was very, this is for me, this is very like apropos to my life. The minute I think that I'm going to get what I want out of life, something changes and shuts it down. So this is like the fourth time this has happened significantly Mm -hmm. in my life by this point that it was kind of comical in a way for me that I was just like, okay, we're doing this. Like you're shutting down all of our doors yet again, God, I don't get to have good things. I don't get to have a healthy family. You know, I'm just telling all myself mm-hmm. all these really sad, terrible things. We, a huge part of our story is the way that miraculously God supplies for everything that you are going to go through. And one of those ways is that my husband is the first of five and his next sibling had been a missionary in Colombia for a couple of years and was just coming back off the mission field and wasn't sure where she wanted to go. So she was like, Hey, this is probably super inconvenient because now I live with you guys for six months while I figure out what I'm going to do with my life. And we were like, we have two kids. This is not inconvenient. We could date nights, come stay with us. And then maybe we'll all live overseas together. So she had actually moved into our house while we were in Maine and was there when we got back. So when we found Amelie's tumor that Monday, we were like, Oh, we got to go. Didn't have to worry about Eloisa. She was with Naf's sister, went to the urgent care. And ultimately they just, it, the communication was not very, was not, I don't know what this is. It's, I can't tell you what this is. And I feel like I'd, been in healthcare enough to know certain people are allowed to tell you certain things about your prognosis. And this was above his pay grade. Um, and so we took the x-rays and the radiologist report that he had, uh, and brought it home. And on our way home, I Googled all the things, not in a like psycho WebMD way, but I knew where to look. 
being in health insurance and stuff. And like, there's just nothing mild about what the radiologist report had said. So he had left us saying, listen, you need to like, we can't do anything here. It's not a fracture. It's not a break. Um, but you cannot wait for our referral system to call you tomorrow. You need to call us first thing. And so his communicating in that way, plus what we read online, um, we just knew, like we knew we were in for some really, like a, just an altered, like a, an alternate universe <laughs> was opening up to us. It was like a weird Doctor Who episode, um, but it was our life. And so we came home. And we just sat in our living room with Naf's sister and prayed and cried and basically just exhausted ourselves. I think we probably had to take some melatonin or something to go to sleep. And then I was up before the sun, waiting, praying, drinking coffee, waiting, like counting the minutes to eight o'clock. And they, you know, I told them the situation and they were like, well, the next appointment we have is Wednesday. And I was like, we can't wait till Wednesday. They told us we needed to get immediately. She's like, read for me the description again. I read it for her. She was like, give me a second. Came back and she was like, we can see you at 12. Can you be here by 12? Uh, And that for me was just a confirmation. Like, you know it. I know it. You're just going to take some tests and like, give me the facts of it. Um, So it all became a bit of a marathon. And what's crazy about whenever you go through a traumatic experience is you remember things so vividly. And for me, my memory has always been a really hard thing. I I don't have a great memory. Um, And so I've loved photography in Chicago. I had a thriving photography business and a lot of it was, I want to remember things and I want other people to have the ability to remember things. And I, my brain doesn't work that way. So I have to take pictures to do that. But everything about those first couple of weeks, I, I remember very vividly. And I think anyone who's been through any type of trauma can remember vividly the moments just before they were told the trauma or the trauma happened to them and just after. And like even maybe during it, maybe they black out a little bit in that, but details are things that that will like be part of your story forever. Um, so that was kind of our long haul. We went to an orthopedist, a well, well-known organization here. They took x-rays. And they just kind of casually, not, I, I, I wouldn't say like casually, but it was just like another day at the office, you know, mm-hmm. like, yep. She has a really aggressive bone tumor. It's eating away at her bone. You need to treat this immediately, get prepared. This is a marathon. And we've already called the children's hospital. They're waiting for you. Wow. So you are going to grab these things that I'm going to give you. You're going to go get her fitted for a brace downstairs. And then you're going to go to the children's hospital. And it was like, from one second to the next, our time did not belong to us. Our schedule didn't belong to us. Our child didn't belong to us. And we had no idea what we were doing. We didn't know anything about pediatric cancers. And we had to learn all of it immediately, very quickly, and figure out how to advocate for our tiny person and take care of our other tiny person at the same time. Um, And luckily, Uh, God was just, it was so many things about that whole time are him just lining things up so perfectly so that we would not be on a ship alone by ourselves in this 
terrible, horrible thing, even though most of the time that's how it felt. It felt very much like we were alone. And in a lot of ways we were, but we, and just thinking about it, like if we were in Chile and this had happened, we don't have a community there and it's not our first language. Like we speak Spanish fluently, but we don't speak medical Spanish. So um, that me working in health insurance for a couple of years, being able to communicate and advocate for ourselves and having the type of policy that we did. Like I had a supplement in our family that like people don't do that. And so we had money coming in from that, that protected us in a lot of ways. And then just the fact that my husband works from home for this amazing company who were incredibly like no questions asked, like take whatever time you need. Didn't even reflect it in pay. Like just were overly generous with us was above and beyond anything, any other circumstance would have allowed for, you know? So I don't know if that answered your question. Sorry. I went on a tangent. Yeah. That was kind of the circumstances leading up to Amelie's diagnosis. So you're talking a lot about the positives and how God lined things up, but I know when I've been in the most difficult situations, my knee jerk response is to question God's goodness um, or his, his faithfulness. And I just was wondering, is that something you struggled with at the beginning or through the process? And if so, Mm. um, what was your experience with that? Yeah, I guess I would say (laughs) if you go through life and you never question God's goodness, I don't know how much of a Christian you are. (laughs) I think that's part of it, right? Job did that. I'm going through um, Jeremiah right now, man, that guy was, you know, you talk about someone who's suicidal. Jeremiah's right there. Like he's just having a time. Um, I have been in deep, dark despair before I've been suicidal before this was not that I understood by this point because of other trauma in my life that just because a good, he's a good God doesn't mean that I'm only going to have good things happen to me. Mm-hmm. Um, that bad things are going to happen too. where the wrestling really, really comes in is when you're a bystander in the trauma of someone else and you have to just care for them the whole time. And you have to really figure out, okay, like it's one thing for me to go through really hard, terrible things. It's totally other thing for you to allow that to happen to my teeny tiny child who can't advocate for herself, who can't even express her emotions outside of happy, glad, sad, mad. And now she has to fight for her life and I can't take it away from her. That's not fair. So there were a lot of dark, dark, dark days. I can't, I honestly can't say that there were days that I questioned God's goodness. I always knew that his goodness was there because of so many different things that happened along the way. Like part and parcel was like the day that we got her diagnosis that morning, a friend had sent me uh, a blog that she had read and it had to do with a different part of my story that I've always wrestled with. And, and then just to like how I view that good things can't happen to me and, mm-hmm. you know, these types of things. And the verse that was quoted in there was from Psalms where it says, God is close to the brokenhearted. He comforts them under his wings. And that was profound for me. Like just, I felt so seen when my friend sent me that blog and I'm not even joking. Like five hours later is when we found Amelie's tumor. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, he gave us this verse to say, I know that you're going to go through something really horrible, terrible. And I'm brokenhearted about it too, because this world is broken but I've got you, you are protected and you get to be here under my wings 
And, and I truly had to wrestle with that. Um, when I was pregnant with Amelie, um, God's given me a different verse for each of my daughters. And when I was pregnant with her, the verse that he gave me, um, is even to your old age and gray hairs. I am he, I will sustain you and I will rescue you. And you can imagine the bitterness that I felt finding out that my kid had cancer and being like, except that you gave me this verse about her old age and gray hairs. And now she has no hair on her head. So you better make this promise true. I think what I had to wrestle with was, okay, even if she doesn't get to that stage where she has gray hairs, is he still a good God? And I think I knew that all along. I think because of the comfort that I felt because of the Holy Spirit's work in my life and because like any person that you'll ever hear who was in the fight for their life can say that that was the closest they've ever been to the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what it was like for us. I mean, we spent over half of the year. I I think we probably, if I was to count it all up, spent over 200 nights in the hospital that year. So we spent way more time there and it was very dark and very sad. And you're also with a bunch of other sick kids. And there were so many nights that I couldn't, like I, I had no ability to pray, but I could read my Bible. Even if it was bitterly, I could read my Bible. And I knew that that was true. And I also, I was like, Hey, I believe that this is true. You better make good on this. Like I am opening this Bible. I am believing that this is true. This is the fight of my life. This is the fight of my daughter's life. So I'm going to trust you for everything that you say in this book. And let's, let's go. Like, let's see who you are in that. Um, And on top of that, there were just an insurmountable amount of times in which I had no breath. Like even just breathing was hard. And the Holy Spirit was practically audibly in my ears being like, this is where the saints come in. This is why they're praying for you. Like, you don't have to do that. You get to, it's, it says that he, the Holy Spirit is interceding for us with groans that we can't even understand. And that means that like, I don't even have to say anything. Like he gets it. And on top of that, he calls us together as a church to lift each other up. And I've done a lot of lifting other people up in my life, but I haven't let people really lift me up before. And this was the first time in my life that I felt like all I could do was lean. I just had to like lean, like in, in, when it talks about the Lord's supper, it talks about Peter leaning on Jesus while they're reclining at the table. And that's just all I could do. And just know that my sisters and brothers literally all over the world were praying for my daughter and for us and for Eloisa. Those were the specific ways in which I knew a, that God was real and B that he was good and C that we live in a fallen world. And my daughter's cancer isn't God's fault and it's not my fault and it's not her fault. And it's not my husband's fault. It's Satan's fault. It's sin's fault. And, and if I feel this sad about my kid, God feels even sadder about it, which is really hard to picture because you're pretty, pretty sad about it yourself. So to imagine that God is even more affected 
by how my kids are and how I am because I'm his kid too. So he's affected about how I'm feeling about this. That was really comforting. And I, I think even to this day, I can stand pretty securely in my faith. I mean, I still like, I'm a cynic, you know, if I'm not in my Bible every day, it is very easy to, for me to be like, it would be so much easier to just live my own truth and be my own happy and mm-hmm. not have to deal with all of this. But it's just such a, a sexy lie that lasts for like three seconds, you know, and I've seen God's goodness enough in my own life that I don't, I don't equate God's goodness with my personal happiness. So I, I'd love for you to walk me through kind of just the whole process of, so Amelie is doing very well right now, um, but how mm-hmm. long were, was the hardest time? And when you kind of got out on the other side, how were you and your husband and your family different? Mm. Yeah. So it's funny how God gives us different ways of time, right? Like he's, he loves numbers. He loves time. He loves these confines that we live by, even though he's not ruled by them, but it was very sweet of him to give us a January to December treatment. So what Amelie had is called Ewing sarcoma. Ewing sarcoma is a bone cancer and it's very rare, maybe 200 kids a year in the world get diagnosed with it. So there's not a lot of research done. And because of that, um, and because of its rarity, there's not a lot of science or medicine for it. So Amelie's protocol, which is still the standard protocol of today is about 25 to 30 years old. So the medicine Amelie had to take is the same that kids were taking 30 years ago, which is ridiculous when you think about how quickly we can pop out a shot for a global pandemic because everyone's affected by it. So she was diagnosed and I have, I think probably the times that were the hardest were those, those first couple, I, I think like probably the first couple weeks, cause you're in shock. And then with also within about seven to 10 days from the first chemo, her hair started falling out. So she was on six different types of chemotherapy. She did three inpatient um, over the course of five days, and then she'd have seven days off. And then she'd go in and do two inpatient over the course of three days. And then she'd have five days off or seven days off. And all on those days off, she was still going and getting blood transfusions, platelet infusions, and had an outpatient chemo that she was taking as well. And then we would be in the hospital, like we were inpatient most of the time. And then if she got a fever, we were inpatient. If she got sick, we were inpatient. And this just happened like this the whole time. So this first couple of months where you're getting used to this new rhythm, where our address changed and where she lost her hair were super hard, super, super hard to walk through that with her and to see her, like to literally just be holding her in the midst of her doing really, really hard things that I couldn't take for her. Um, then the next hardest time as, and these are both like from the parent perspective, the next hardest time was when she had surgery. So because it was a bone cancer, they had to do surgery to remove it. And because of where hers was, which is in the wrist, which is super rare, like normally this cancer is in the hips or in the legs and in young boys, hers was like in her wrist. She's a girl and she was like five. And normally it's like 10 to 12 year old. 
So many things about her were just very different. Um, so in May, we did treatment all the way up to April, and then she needed to recover her, her uh, blood counts and her immune system for a couple weeks before we could do surgery, which was super terrifying. And then we did surgery. And all this time as we're prepping for surgery, they're like, okay, we have a couple al- options. Normally with the aggressiveness of this cancer and up until the last 10 years, amputation was the only thing they could do. But because of where we're at with 3D technology and just how robots and cameras and and needles work, um, they were like, we can either use a cadaver bone, we can use a pig bone, or we can use her own bone. And what what we wound up doing was using her own bone because that it's all the same person. So the chances of her body accepting it was good. So they basically took nine centimeters and the growth plate from her fibula in her right leg and took and put that in her left arm and took out nine centimeters and the growth plate, all the cancerous stuff in her left arm and replaced it with that. And while that all sounds really cool and it is really cool, we were also kind of simultaneously told like, this is a really quick recovery. This leg surgery we do all the time and we reuse that bone all the time. People normally walk out of the hospital. And this arm thing is really scary. And that's where we're having to keep all of our focus. So like, just know the leg thing is a thing, but it's not that big of a thing. And when we had surgery days, she's having two simultaneous surgeries, two teams. We had to talk to probably 50 people and say the same exact thing to 50 different people. Finally, she has this 14 hour surgery and we go to see her. And it was just like, not anything that they prepared us for. Like she was basically in a full body cast swollen everywhere. And it was just really, really overwhelming. Like it's still something that's very overwhelming for me to process because it wasn't what they told us. And then on top of that, she couldn't walk like her, her leg was in a cast. Uh, And so we went from being like, okay, this is risky and scary to like, wait, I I'm renting a wheelchair. Like I didn't, you told me that most people walk out of the hospital and now I'm renting a wheelchair. I don't know. Like we were like, how do we get her into our car? Like she can't, like, it was just so, it was so overwhelming. That part was really, really dark. That season was really dark for us. And part of the darkness was not knowing that we were going to have to teach her how to walk again. Like we didn't, we weren't, we were prepared for like, by that point, all this cancer stuff, but now we're also dealing with all this physical therapy stuff. She has to learn how to use her hand, how to write, how to hold things. But she also has to do that with her leg and her leg wasn't recovering as fast. And one of the chemos that she takes, takes away um, hearing and vision. And another side effect of it is drop foot where you lose all sensation of muscle in your foot. So you can't use it anymore. So that was also a fear of like, is she ever going to get this back? Because she's also taking this chemo that causes this. Um, Those were probably the darkest days. I I think like from like February to May, we kind of hit our stride and knew what we were doing and we were doing really well. And it was very productive and May hit, got us to June. And we went back into treatment in June for another six months. And that was just hell. We didn't like, we just, it was like, all of it was really hard. Like we had come back 
the results of the surgery had come back saying, we got all of the tumor. We don't have to do radiation, which was definitely something we were going to have to do, which is in and of itself a miracle. So that was really great. But many children who die from pediatric cancers don't actually die from the cancer itself. They die from all the side effects of all of the chemo that they have to do because pediatric cancers get less than 4% of funding when it comes to government funding. So most pediatric cancers are super, super unresearched and pharmaceutical companies don't want to touch them because it's children and there aren't a lot of cases. So it's not a moneymaker. And so these kids are all for the most part stuck on medicine that they don't even give to adults anymore, <laughs> but kids wow. do because there's so few of them. So you have all of this other trauma that you're processing in the middle of it. Um, those were the, the darkest days for both of us as parents. Um, as a married couple, the early days were the hardest, bar none. The rest of it, we were a really good team. But the first couple days, the first couple weeks, really, we had to do so much. Like we both had to learn about this thing and we both learned very differently. And then on top of that, we both had to grieve this and we grieve very differently. And we've never had to grieve like this before. Like most parents never have to do this type of grief in their entire marriages. And we were doing it within five years of having our first kid. Um, and we didn't know what that looked like for each other. So that was really, really hard. We had a moment in which I, we went out on a date. It's our first time out. And I had the audacity to tell Naf that I didn't think that he was as angry about this as I was, <laughs> which was not well received with great and just cause. Um, and we just fought for like three hours. And ultimately, like at first it was like, what? Of course, I'm just as angry about this as you are. I'm just doing it different. And then it was just us yelling to each other not at each other, but like, we were just yelling all the things that we can't say to anybody else because they'll try and fix it or they'll try and come up with an answer. And like, there are no answers for any of the angry things that we're feeling. And all we can do is pound at heaven's gates and be like, why are these shut to us right now? Like, why are we not having the prosperity and the provision that you promised for us? If we believe in you and why are you letting this happen to our kid? all, you know, just all the whys, like why, 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 everything, any question you could possibly ask, we were asking that yelling it to each other, <laughs> the same things. Um, those were the hardest days for him and I as a couple, but very quickly, we also recognized, okay, we are both doing this differently, but we're doing it. We're both feeling the same things, but in different ways. And we are both going to miscommunicate this entire process because we're both exhausted. So we literally got to this place very quickly where we'd be like, blah, 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 blah. I just totally miscommunicated to you. This is what I was trying to say. Mm -hmm. And we were just like, so gracious with each other. Like, yep, totally got it. Totally realized you were miscommunicating. Totally know what you meant to say. <laughs> it was just like, mm -hmm. it became this funny thing for us. Like this inside joke where we're like, we're just miscommunicating. No big deal. We've got this. And other people are like, can we do something? And we're like, no, like we had our, we like established a new language in our marriage of how to communicate and give each other just oodles and noodles of grace so that we could do all the other really actually hard things. Um, I processed by sharing what was going on on our 
Amelie's Tribe Facebook group or writing it out. That was really important for me. I'm an external processor. And so I would give a video to our tribe or I would write it out and then I'd kind of go radio silent for like three days. And that's kind of how I processed and protected. And then Naftali was, is an introvert. And so his was very internal and I would just find him with an iPad drawing and he just really took up painting during that time. Um, so without really knowing it and we just kind of, I think we just both kind of migrated into like, how do we self-protect and fill our bucket up so that we can keep taking care of our kids? And how do we let the right people in to be kind of our gatekeepers and protect us and then not really care about anyone else's feelings, (laughs) just like happily put a a concrete wall around us, um, which was really sweet. And we had really great people surrounding us and protecting us responsibly, um, not voyeuristically, just really, really well. And then that really all led to 2019 um, when treatment was all done and they sent us on our merry way. We kind of knew like going into this, you're presented your whole team. You find out who your pharmacist is. You find out who your nutritionist is. You have your oncology team, your hematology team, your PAs, your NAs, all of these people, everybody who are your people, you get their personal cell phone numbers and you know, everyone, you get all of the binders, you get all the books. But when you end treatment, it's like, yeah, you're done. We love you. Bye. And there is nothing. It's like dead silence. Like no one's checking in on you like they were before. You don't really know how to operate. Like, do I still have to clean all the vegetables I give her in this really rigorous way? Or does that matter? Can I give her sugar? Can I not? Like, how can, how do I operate? Because I've just been operating in this really terrible, horrible place for a whole entire year. And now you're just like, have a great life. She's like, good. And, you know, we had scans every three months. Now we're at, um, we just graduated to every six months and we have two of those. And then we go to every year for five years. So it was just, it kind of was like, you guys are done. Merry Christmas. <laughs> and now you're just like a bottle of feelings wrapped up in a ball of yarn that you get to untangle on your own and we love you. And that that's not, I'm not saying that to say that that was what our team did to us. Cause our team was biased the whole entire time, but our community was like that. Like we are in a world in which we are leeches to trauma and we jump onto other people's trauma and we voyeuristically feel our feelings through that. And then when they're done their trauma, we're like, so glad you're great. I'm out. Now I'm going to go deal with this other tragedy going on. And we just kind of leave people like finishing a trauma in the middle of a trauma, whatever that looks like, like a, a soaked sponge that's been wrung out and used a bunch. And like, it's just still sitting rotten in the sink instead of just like getting rid of it or cleaning it or whatever. Um, so we realized that very quickly and knew that in 2019, we were not going to be able to have time to go to counseling. Like, we got pregnant in January. We finished treatment in December. We got pregnant in January. Um, and we had a make-a-wish trip for Amelie in March that we did. We went to Maine to visit with my family for like six months, not six months, six weeks. Mm-hmm. And in that time, Naf and I went to Italy for two weeks, which was a trip we had previously pa- planned for our 10-year anniversary. And we weren't able to do because of treatment. So we took advantage of that. 
also in 2019. And then we had a baby and then we spontaneously moved, which was not part of any of the plan. Um, and so we just kind of were like, we're not going to be able to sit down and process and sit and talk. What can we do? And from counseling I had done in my life before I had been given this really great resource resource called voice of the heart by Chip Dodd. And he basically just walks you through the eight emotions that we have and, um, how they're all actually really holy and important for our development and our growth and who we are as human beings. And some of them we've maybe reframed inappropriately because of trauma in our lives. So it basically is helping you reclaim healthy emotions, explain experiencing all these emotions God given us in a healthy way. Like anger is actually really a beautiful feeling because it means we are angry at injustice. We are angry at um, pain. We are angry at, fear, whatever that is. So those are really good things for us to feel because they remind us that there is good that we are fighting for. And so we're angry that there is bad. So we decided to take that framework and we created what's called help gallery. And we haven't put any installations in there in a while, but all of 2019, every month we threw in an installation. NAF would do artwork. We basically would tackle one of the emotions or a side subject. NAF would paint something and then I would write about it from the lens of a pediatric parent. Um, and it really was just our way to cathartically process through what we went through. It was really sweet because NAF can create such beautiful things. I'm no artist at all. And he's amazing at it. Um, so to see what was going on inside of him and the things that he thought about these subjects as it relates to pediatric cancer, were heartbreaking, but also so poignant and beautiful. And they helped steer my words in a way that I probably would have only selfishly stored, steered, but because I had his too, made it really beautiful. Um, so that, that became the way that we reunited on the end of it. Like we united the beginning of it in all of our like, oh, this really stinks. How are we gonna do this together? And maintaining our team dynamic through the whole thing. And then at the end being like, I can't make you process your grief and you can't make me process my grief because we're too broken. We're totally wrung out, Mm -hmm. but we can process our grief together uh, because we're united by this and no one else is. Um, And I think we still have a really long way to go in finding out all the ways in which um, Amelie's cancer changed us as a family, as ourselves, in the way that we communicate with each other, in the things that trigger us, uh, in ways that we withhold ourselves in community. Um, but at the same time, it's helped us function in all of those ways, where if we hadn't have done it, I think we would be functioning very differently and poorly if we hadn't at least taken time to honor the season and write about it. Mm-hmm. And if there's anyone listening who's in a similar place to where you and Naftali were four years ago, what would you tell them? Hmm. When um, I would go to church every once in a while during Amelie's year, she couldn't. And that was really hard because it was really hard to go to something that was also hers and not take her. Uh, But I really needed it. And one time, this was early on, I think, I, I honestly don't remember, 
when exactly it was, but at our church, we do communion around a table together. So um, we just all stand, we're a small church. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we stand around a table together uh, and we share the bread that represents Christ's body and the blood that represents his blood. And I still don't really even know what compelled our pastor to be like, he, he had preached a really poignant sermon that I don't remember at all. But at the table, I was sitting next to him and he was just like, Alyssa, would you tell us what this table means to you? And it was a really profound moment because I couldn't really bring myself to go to church very frequently. And when I did, I was always crying because I was just so mad and so broken and, um, and everyone had always said church is supposed to be a hospital, not a golf or a country club. And so I was like, okay, I am on life support. So I am going to my hospital. Um, so when he asked me that, I just remember being like, that's a great question. What does this table mean to me? And I just said, honestly, this table means that whether my daughter lives or dies, it doesn't change the level of sacrifice that Christ gave. And God knows what I'm feeling because he gave his son to us so that we could go to heaven so that my daughter could go there. If this is the end for her, that's where she's going. And I know that. And I just have to live in that hope and in that truth. And this table for me isn't about whether I get what I want. It's about knowing that God is good despite what I want and that no amount of justice I expect out of this will compare to the justice that God is going to require because he's going to get it. And I know that, and I know that he is fighting for me and for my daughter and for my marriage, for both my daughters. And, um, And I just have to know that if I only get my daughter for five years of her life, God's still good and he's still on the throne. So I think my advice to anyone listening who has gone through a moment in which there's a reckoning in their life. And I want to be clear that like, it doesn't have to be something as tragic as coming to grips with someone you love dying or having to fight for their life or you dying and you having to fight for your life. Um, It can be that it can be something as traumatic as that as a miscarriage or stillbirth or a diagnosis. It can also be um, a confrontation of an addiction. It, It can be a loss of a job or a loss of expectation. Like, I am mad that my life is not what I thought that it would be. I expected by this point, my life to be this and it is not. So you are not a good God anymore. Um, So I think my advice would be for anyone in that reckoning, lean into it. Like 
if God is who he says he is, and if he really is as big and as powerful as he is, then no question that you can ask is going to unthrown him. And no question that you can ask is going to take back what he's already done by giving Christ for all of our sins while we were still sinners. And my favorite thing about who he is, is that as much as we always are like, you forgot me, you forgot that I wanted this. You forgot that you gave me this desire in my heart. The reality is we forget how good of a God he is and that he's called us to sacrificial living, no matter what that is, whether it's who you think you're supposed to love and you have to give that up or whether it's that you're going to have a super happy family and you don't have one or the health of your own child, whatever that is, God has not forgotten his gotten his promises to you. You might have to give up what you think those promises are. Mm. And the other thing of it is that actually God is the best rememberer. He remembers all of our tears. He remembers us enough that he's put in place a Holy Spirit who gets our grief so much that when it says that he intercedes for us with groanings, we can't understand. I don't think a single person who hears that can't understand what that means. We have all wept into our pillows with sounds that we didn't know our body could make. That's what that is. He knows that he remembers that and he makes that a daily practice. And it says that he keeps all of our tears in a bottle in the Bible. It also says that he will wipe away all of our tears one day. That is not a God who God who forgets. That's a God who very tangibly knows and remembers and calls to order all the chaos. It is hard to reconcile that in the middle of it. It's hard to reconcile that on a really, really dark day when you feel invisible and lonely. Um, I think the only hope that it can bring is thank God you're not in control, right? Like, thank God it's not up to you to remember all of your loneliness and fears and sadness and tears. You get to have this moment of weakness and sit in the lap of a really good dad which some of us really need to know that there's a good dad out there who just wants us to sit and cry and bang on his chest and be mad at him and yell at him because he's got it he's got it in his hands just doesn't look like what we wanted it to look like so i think that that is what i would hope would be encouraging for someone else like have your fit have your tantrum that does not scare God one bit. He's there for it. Be like Peter. Lean on him. He's strong enough. He's got all of that. And he's so happy to do it. But he likes to be asked and he likes to be brought into it. Thanks so much for sharing today, Alyssa. I know it's it's encouraged me, inspired me up, and I know it's going to encourage everyone who listens. Thank you, Hope. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Hope Unyielding. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please pass it along to someone who you think it would encourage. To make sure you never miss an episode, hit subscribe or follow the show on Instagram at hope underscore unyielding. Thanks again for listening, and I hope to see you next time.